Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church on the 23rd of January, 2022. If you're a visitor here, welcome to you. If you're a visitor online, welcome to you. If you're a regular here, welcome to you. And if you're a regular online, welcome to you too. We're here to worship God, to sing praises to him, to pray to him. We're going to hear uh, the Bible opened up to us by Duncan, our pastor, later on. And we're going to take communion today as well. So um, we've got a lot to look forward to. But it's all about giving glory to Jesus, isn't it? All about worshipping him. And what I'd like to do is just start with a few verses from Psalm 9, just to bring us together. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. And from verse 7, the Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. We'll be reading from Acts 9, verses 1 through to 25. Acts 9, verses 1 to 25. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. <clears throat> now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. 
Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Thanks be to God. Please take a seat and let me add to Adrian's welcome. Thanks so much for being with us today. And to come to such a, a memorable passage of Scripture and memories are interesting things, aren't they? I, I put it to you that, that memories are, well, they're hugely selective for all of us. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Between the age of three and 13, you lived, I don't know, what, more than three and a half thousand days. If I was to ask you how many of those days you can specifically remember, it's not many, is it? Three and a half thousand, and there's a tiny portion of them that you can remember. The vast majority of those days have slipped into the darker recesses of your memory. But the small number of days that you do remember well is almost certainly because something significant happened on those days. And it's possible, isn't it, for us to forget more than 3,000 days, and yet for some of those days to be able to remember exactly what you were wearing, to remember who else was there, to remember what you ate that day, when you probably can't remember what you ate on Tuesday, right? You can remember exactly what was said. This is how memories work. And for all of us here today, we have those days, significant days. Sometimes we can't quite figure out why those days our brain thinks are significant, but 
That's why we remember them, and not always for good reasons. You remember that day when you had that knock at the door. You remember that day when you became a parent. You remember that day when you first tasted Chinese food. In our Bible reading today, we are reading of one of those days. One of those days. In fact, the person who's at the center of these verses, for him, it was the day. You read through the rest of the book of Acts, and Saul, who has this amazing conversion here, he repeats this story a couple of times. You read through the letters that Saul would would then go on to write, and he refers back to this day more than once. He could tell you where he was, who he was with, what he heard, what he saw, what he did immediately after. Because this was the day when everything changed for Saul. This was the day he had an encounter with Jesus. And this encounter is described for us um, pretty quickly in those first nine verses. And how would we describe what happens here? I mean, is this a story of someone becoming a Christian because uh, someone sat down with them and persuaded them? Um, No, Saul wasn't kind of persuaded here to change his mind on some things. This isn't a debate. There's, There's not really anything here recorded by way of an appeal to Saul. Jesus doesn't say, for example, well, you know, Saul, you've got strong convictions, you make some good points, but have you ever thought about… There's nothing like that, is there? No, instead, it is the blinding light of Jesus Himself that changes Saul and brings clarity to Saul's mind. And that's the first thing I want us to notice today, is encountering Jesus, it is encountering Jesus that makes us see things clearly. Encountering Jesus makes us see things clearly. Saul had an opinion about Jesus, of course. Before this, he he believed that Jesus was was just a man and, and, in fact, a troublemaker, someone who justifiably suffered a criminal's death and who had not really risen from the dead, but had a number of followers who, for the vast majority of them, had been fooled into thinking this Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, we read earlier in Acts, Saul had heard Jesus' followers teaching about Jesus, and it had not changed his mind. Saul was convinced that this message about Jesus was actually a threat to everything that he thought was important. The Jewish religion, with its system of temple and sacrifices and priests, was being undermined by this message about Jesus. These followers of Jesus were saying, oh, you don't need a temple or sacrifices or a priest to be right with God. No, you need Jesus and Jesus only. He's the place you go to to meet God. He is the sacrifice that's been made for your sins. He is the one who represents you before God. Well, Saul was not the kind of guy who could just live and let live. There is, as you read it, frankly, an irrational hatred in this man. We read in chapter 8 that he was ravaging the church in Jerusalem, dragging off men and women into prison, all because 
they claimed allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth. And it was his persecution that caused the church to scatter. They had to run out of Jerusalem, find any place of sanctuary to be safe. But Saul was not content with that. And that's what we come to in chapter 9. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the religious authorities and he asks for permission to hunt down those Christians who have escaped from Jerusalem. To hunt them down, put them in shackles and bring them back to the city to put them in prison. He is actively pursuing them wanting to wipe out all who belong to the way, as it's put in verse 2, those who belong to the way. It's the first time Christians are described like this, those who belong to the way. It's an unusual description, isn't it? We don't speak about Christians like that today, but it's a good description. You see, they belonged to Jesus, who said of himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That is the only way to God. But also, this language of the way, they belong to the way, it described their way of life. This is the way they lived. They walked in the way, which means they were following Jesus. Well, Saul is one hardened chap, isn't he? It's his life's mission to hunt them down, to lock them up, and even to kill them. Well, just like the flat earth conspiracy theorist who gets to take a journey into space, Saul has taken on just such a journey. His murderous mission is stopped in its tracks by Jesus himself. And we're told that this, this light from heaven shone around him in verse 3. It is the light of the glory of of Jesus, flashes all around and knocks Saul off his feet with the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul has to ask, because you see, there's a whole lot of people that you could choose from who he's persecuting. He says, well, who are you, Lord? And, and that word Lord is more a polite word than a recognition of, of, of deity or anything like that. It's, it's a, well, 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 who are you, sir? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And here, in those words, Jesus delivers to Saul the clarity that up to this point he had lacked. For the first time, he got it. What, what sort of clarity do these words bring? Well, Jesus is not dead, he is alive. Jesus was no mere man. He resides in the glory of God. The glory shines out of heaven. But the detail that Jesus mentions twice, and this is such a small, such a short dialogue, for Jesus to mention something twice must mean its significance. Jesus says, you are persecuting me. Twice he says it. I mean, up to this point, Saul thought he was merely persecuting a bunch of deluded followers of Jesus. He was persecuting those who belonged to the way, not Jesus himself. 
But here in these simple words, Jesus reveals a profound truth. Such is the intimate link between Jesus and His followers. So closely connected are they that to persecute them is to persecute Him. To hurt them is to hurt Him. Later on, Saul, who of course uh, is the Apostle Paul, uh, he would write on this very subject, and he would use the picture of a body. He would explain to Christians about this connection that they have with Jesus, and he would say, it's like a body where Jesus is the head, and every member of the body is connected to Him and connected to one another. And isn't that what's revealed to him here? Jesus doesn't just keep an eye on his followers. Jesus doesn't just have a daily update on how his followers are doing. No, he is intimately connected to every one of them. If you're a Christian here today, to you, to you, no exception, to you. He feels with them. And in a very real way, Jesus is with his people in all that they go through. And I'm sure there are some here today who need to be reminded of that. Whatever you're going through today, if you're trusting in Jesus, he feels it with you, such as his nearness to you. You are an extension of him. And so maybe in a, in, a, in a more real way than we've appreciated before, it's not just a small thing to say, well, Jesus is with his people. He is unbreakably connected to them. You are a part of his body. And when you ache, he aches. And when someone rejects you because of your allegiance to Jesus know that it's Jesus who is being rejected in you. And that's good company to be in. And you see the immediate transformation in Saul. I mean, there is the the short-term stuff. You know, the man who came intent on binding the followers of Jesus, he ends up being led by the hand like an infant along the road to Damascus. No longer is he destroying those who belong to Jesus, Now he's taking instructions from Jesus. And I think we're to take from uh, verse 9 his three days where he neither eats nor drinks, that he's fasting. It's not that he just lost his appetite, he's fasting. It's an expression of, of humility, an expression of penitence and dependence upon God. I mean, Saul has just found out that he's persecuting the Lord of glory. What he deserves is judgment. Instead, the risen Lord Jesus has a plan for Saul. And I think this is where we must all come to. I've not found any exceptions to this. We all have to recognize who Jesus is. I mean, showing you who Jesus is is really all I can do. It's actually all I'm called to do. Because when you see Jesus, you not only see him, 
but you see everything else clearly as well. You know, the light that shines around Saul on the road to Damascus is not just for effect. It is the reality of who Jesus is. He is God who is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. But look, what we also find here is God has become a man who lived the perfect life, who died the sinner's death, and who rose again from the dead, all so that He could have this intimate union with His people, with all those who believe in Him, He connects Himself, unites Himself. And in so doing, Jesus takes everything that is theirs, all of their sin, and He gives to them everything that is His, all of His right standing with God. And because He has taken all their sin, He suffers and He dies on the cross to bear the penalty that sin deserves. And because He has given us all of His right standing with God, we come into the presence of God like children before a father. And when you become convinced of that, when you become convinced of what Jesus has done and why He has done it, then you see that actually living your short life just to suit yourself is missing the whole point of why we have life in the first place. Because we've come to understand that Jesus is God. Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus is the reason for life. And when I see that, I change direction. I come on my knees before Him to find forgiveness that I need, and I follow Him. When I see who Jesus is, I want to belong to the way. And sure enough, Saul spends three days praying and fasting, that is looking away from himself and up to God, expressing his need of God, his dependence on Him, and surely seeking mercy from God, whom he spent all this energy and time opposing. So, even though Saul is struck blind, for the first time in his life, he saw everything clearly. And I want to ask you today, have you seen Jesus clearly yet? What do you make of him? Just some legendary figure from the pages of an old book? Or is he, as he claims, the living God who became human to save sinners like us? Is he the God of glory? If we are convinced of that, then what is a reasonable response to Him? Saul shows us. We bow before Him. We change direction. Well, Saul has an encounter with Jesus, of course, but then Saul has an encounter with a man called Ananias. And I think we can all sympathize with Ananias, can't we? You've just been told to go and meet with the chief persecutor of Christians, the guy who's come to Damascus to put guys like Ananias in jail. But this scene of transformation is not just what happens in Saul, it's what happens in Ananias as well. 
This follower of Jesus is able to approach the man who had consented to the murder of fellow Christians and say to him, Brother Saul. What power there is in those words. You know, we read of of Saul helping to preside over the murder of Stephen, a godly man, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And you think this message had not traveled up the road to Damascus to the Christians there? They were already in fear of Saul coming. And yet Ananias can go lay his hand on Saul's shoulder and say, Brother Saul. You see, Ananias has already come to understand this wonderful reality for all of those who belong to the way that an encounter with Jesus brings you into the family. An encounter with Jesus brings you into the family. We saw something similar to this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 8 when the Samaritans became Christians. Um, And you remember there was a lot of Jewish prejudice against Samaritans. And God orchestrated things so that Peter and John would travel from Jerusalem into Samaria to see with their own eyes that these ordinarily despised Samaritans really had come to faith in Jesus. And as Peter and John laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. They were able to see with their own eyes that the same Holy Spirit who they had received, the Samaritans received. And Ananias has a similar privilege here, doesn't he? He is able to fully welcome Saul into the family of God. He's given the privilege of laying hands on Saul, expressing their oneness, saying, you are part of me, and seeing, and whatever that looked like we're not told, but seeing that Saul received the Holy Spirit. And this is the reality. They were now brothers in Christ. Previously, one had feared for his life from the other, and now they are brothers And it really is only the church of Jesus Christ where things like this can genuinely happen. You read through the New Testament and you find that gathered in the same local church, sharing the Lord's Supper together, like we're going to do later in this service, where Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, previously Jews had considered Gentiles unclean to eat with. We're going to see this more clearly in chapter 10, but in the church what happens, there they are calling each other brothers and sisters, sharing together in the Lord's Supper. In the same local church, slaves and slave masters would share together in the Lord's Supper. Formerly dishonest tax collectors would sit with those whom they had robbed and would share together in the Lord's Supper. Testimony to how their lives had been turned around by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the good news of Jesus Christ does. It builds a family. It brings reconciliation. It brings forgiveness. And it does that because regardless of our backgrounds, we are all in the same boat. We are all at our core sinners who need to be saved by God's grace. I mean, we don't know anything about Ananias other than what we have here. But I'm sure of this. He was a sinner saved by grace, just as Saul was. 
just as any Christian is. And in fact, that's the qualification. You need to be a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. Otherwise, Jesus has nothing for you. When we remember that, how much easier it is to put our hand on another's shoulder and say, brother, sister. And that's a significant part of of why we observe the Lord's Supper here. The Bible tells us that we are testifying to our oneness in Jesus, how we all come to Jesus on the same footing, sinners saved by grace. This is what we need to remind ourselves of, particularly when we are tempted to fall out with a brother or a sister, that we come back to this. In Christ, we belong to the same family. We have had that encounter with Jesus that brings us into the family. Well, what will Saul do now that he's got his eyesight back? He gets his strength back. What is the most logical thing you expect him to do next? Does he, does he say, now, where, where are those letters from the high priest? I've still got business to do in Damascus. No, not at all. The first thing he does, even before taking food, actually, is he gets baptized. It's interesting, this has come up again and again and again, isn't it? You can't tell the story of the early church without baptism. Uh, and in fact, you can't tell the story of the church without baptism. This is the pattern that we keep observing in Scripture, isn't it? Someone comes to faith in Jesus, they affirm that saving faith by being baptized. And they do that because it is a declaration that they belong to Jesus. They're saying, I am united with him in his death and his resurrection. It's declaring a a new allegiance. This is just what Christians do. And how significant for a man like Saul to declare a new allegiance to Jesus Christ. You see straight away that Saul's life is on an entirely new trajectory. We see here that an encounter with Jesus transforms a life. An encounter with Jesus transforms a life. And this is what stands out. This was no mere religious experience for Saul. It really was the day when everything changed. Nothing was the same ever again. In verse 19, at the end of verse 19, he spends time with the people he had come to arrest. He's he's hanging out with the believers in Damascus. And he gets to work, but with a new mission. What is it now? telling his fellow Jews, verse 20, that Jesus is the Son of God. As Christians saw Saul hunting them down, they surely thought that this man might actually be the undoing of the church. But as we've been reminded in every chapter of this book of Acts so far, God is in control of his mission. God intervenes to turn this persecutor of the church into a builder of the church. God doesn't intend to just save Saul in order to get him to stop hurting other Christians. No, God's plans are much, much bigger than that. God has a mission for Saul. It was, it was, it was shared with Ananias in verse 15. He is a chosen instrument of mine 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. How unlikely that all seemed just a few verses ago. Jesus had commissioned his followers to take the good news about him to the ends of the earth. And while we had read of a flurry of conversions in Jerusalem, some initial optimism in the surrounding regions, persecution has really come to the fore. They are the victims of threats and murder. And at this point, we would think the church will do well to survive. And yet into that, God intervenes in this amazing way to convert the man who is going to lead the missionary movement of the church, who will carry the gospel all the way to Rome. You see, the gospel doesn't stop when someone is converted. It goes on. God has a mission. But I want you to think about our setting today. Friends, we live in a nation that has seen a rapid decline in the number of churches. A significant decline in the number of gospel-proclaiming churches. And therefore, in the number of Christians. And when I say Christians, I mean people who have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Places that once proclaimed the good news about Jesus have found more important things to talk about. And as a result, churches have emptied, and they've closed their doors, and they've sold them off. So we are in a situation where one or two percent of Scotland's population are Christians. And you come out to rural parts, and that falls even lower, typically. Many communities have no gospel witness at all. As Christians, we often pray for revival, and that's good, that is right. But the truth is, the situation in Scotland today is more desperate than that. We have become an unevangelized nation where there are parts of this country, parts of this shire, where the gospel no longer has any foothold at all. And it looks bleak, doesn't it? Yet God is continuing the mission of the church. And the mission in Scotland at this time is to re-evangelize this nation. And it begins where we are today. His call is for us not to sit content that he has saved me and saved us, but to go to where we are and, and convince people, to declare to people that Jesus really is the Son of God to set our lives on this new course, this new trajectory, to tell others the good news of Jesus. And so, yes, of course, we are a small portion of the population, and a spiritual revival in our land looks impossible to our eyes, doesn't it? But God is still saving people. People are still having encounters with Jesus. We must believe that. Jesus is still empowering the church to be his witnesses. God is still in control of his mission. And so we do what seems weak 
It does. It seems weak. Little old me trying to lovingly tell others about Jesus. But we read a passage like this, and it's little old me telling maybe even the most hard-hearted person I can think of about Jesus, because you know what? This is the sort of person God can reach. We encourage one another to keep going. We run holiday Bible clubs like we're planning to do in April. We have concentrated seasons of mission where we look to draw people in to come and hear the good news. We train and equip future church leaders. We even plant new churches. This is what we're called to do, and it seems, yes, like a drop in the ocean. But this is what God has promised to use to reach the lost. This is how the gospel breaks new ground. This is how a nation is transformed by the gospel. As we entrust ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, we want, to, we, want to, we want to be engaged in your mission to make Jesus known, and we need you to be at work. This is what we give ourselves to when we've had an encounter with Jesus. Saul had a unique experience. There's no denying that. Um, elsewhere, he gives... Uh, he speaks to a church about the, the, the times when Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection. And he speaks of his own experience like this. He says, last of all, he appeared to me. And it seems that in, Paul, in Saul, Paul's mind, there was no expectation that this was normal, that the flashing lights on the road to Damascus are, is the normal way by which we come to salvation. But we must not let that steal the utter relevance of this event to every one of us. Because what happened to Saul, be under no illusion, what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus needs to happen to every one of us. This is the only way we come to salvation, is when God graciously intervenes in our lives. It's when we have an encounter with the living Jesus Christ And as we share the gospel from the pages of Scripture, that is what is happening right here today. As the good news of Jesus is proclaimed, here is your encounter with Him. How do you respond to Him? He is speaking to you. He is calling you to come to Him in faith, to find forgiveness, to give your life to Him. What do you do with that encounter? And when we respond to Jesus, we find a new identity, a new allegiance to Jesus Christ, just as Saul did. We have a sense of belonging to the family of believers, just as Saul did. And we have a commission from Jesus himself to be his witness, just as Saul did. So I ask you again, have you had that kind of encounter with Jesus? Is he your savior? Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian, and this is a day when we have a fresh encounter with Jesus. God's speaking to us today, folks. Let's respond so that today will be one of those days that in years to come you'll look back. And who knows, maybe you'll remember what you wore. You'll remember who spoke to you. You'll remember what biscuit you had with your tea afterwards because this was the day when you had a fresh encounter with the living Lord Jesus. When we encountered him and we gave ourselves to him. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for this account of the conversion of Saul. And Lord, help us not to think of him as 
so exceptional that we don't see our own need of conversion. We thank you that's what you're in the business of doing, that as we encounter your Son, the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that by your Spirit you change us, you give us new life, new hearts, new desires, new ambitions, a new reason for living. And I pray, Father, that we would all be really very clear on that, Lord, that we would have a clear view of Jesus today so that we might see him and see everything else clearly as well. We pray it in his name. Amen. Um, just as we close, we're going to say the words of the grace together, which will be on the screen. Um, I'm going to be down at the front here. If anyone wants to speak about anything that's been mentioned today or, or for prayer, please do come and do that. Stay for tea and coffee. And thank you for being with us. Let's, let's pray these words to each other. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.